Welcome back to our teaching in the book of John. Now, the last time we were here, we completed chapter seven, dealing with Jesus's interactions with the people at the Feast of Booths. We remember it was there that his own flesh and blood brothers wanted him to go to the feast to announce his messiahship so that the people would receive him because that was an expectation of the Jews that they would enjoy the presence of the Messiah and the peace that the Messiah would bring as signified by such an occasion. We know that Jesus refused to do this, to go up to the feast in this way. But later on, he did go up to go up to the feast and there he taught the people. And it was at this particular time, looking very briefly back on John 7, that Jesus spoke because he saw that was the issue of there would be daily uh, going to a, a particular spring, the Gihon spring, to draw water and bring it back to the temple in a golden vessel. And there the people would sing songs and we would draw joyously from the well of salvation, from water from the well of salvation. And Jesus was moved in his spirit to declare that he himself, that if anybody is thirsty, let him come to him, that is to Jesus, and drink. For he who believes in me, as it is written in the scriptures, out of his belly shall flow rivers of many waters. So Jesus was speaking of faith in himself. And so from this, it began a whole uh, uh, interaction of Jesus speaking with the people. And it basically all surrounded his, surrounded his origin. The people would quarrel about where Jesus was from. People were thinking Jesus was from simply the, he was the son of Joseph and Mary, but Jesus kept arguing that he was from above. But his whole point was, and the theology of John is, Jesus' origin is supernatural. Jesus is pre-existing. He has no creation. He existed in the beginning with God. That's John 1 and 1. And so this one who existed in the beginning with God, who is God, became flesh, became a human being for a purpose. That is to offer salvation to those who would believe in him. But nevertheless, this descended, Jesus' discussion descended into an argument amongst the people about his origins. And some of the people were uh, kind of determined, well, is he the Christ? Is he not? Is he some great individual? Is he not? But nevertheless, only a few people really believed in him, but the others really were not stable whatsoever. It was during this time that the Pharisees had seen that Jesus was making inroads into the hearts of hearts and minds of the people to believe in him. They sent soldiers to arrest Jesus. The soldiers in listening to Jesus were not able to arrest Jesus. So they returned back to the Pharisees without him. This caused the Pharisees to become very angry. That is the leaders of the people, Pharisees, Sadducees, all of that. They became very angry and they began to say, well, who in the world is believing in, in this Jesus as the Christ? You know, but then they begin to simply say that these people who do not know the law are accursed and looking around. Are any of the rulers of the people, any of the Pharisees believing that Jesus is the Christ? And they begin to even say, no Christ comes from Galilee. But the whole point is, without going through all of chapter seven again, it devolved into an issue of his origin. And the main thrust that John is trying to give is Jesus is of heavenly origin. And by saying he is of heavenly origin, it speaks of his pre-existence, or we can even say 
his eternal existence. Remember what he said as he opened his gospel. In the beginning, eternal existence. Existence. In the beginning was the word when in eternity passed. That's when. How long? The word was with God. How long does God the Father exist? He is from eternity to eternity. He has always existed. And what has the word been? It has always existed. And then tell me about the nature of the word. The word was God. The word was God by nature. And what happened in verse 14? The word was made flesh. That is Jesus. So that's the very whole synoptics of John's gospel that Jesus is divine. So we're continuing this, this idea or concept, as you may want to call it, in John chapter 7 and talking about Jesus' origin. But in the speaking of his origin, you are literally uh, uh, building on the concept, which is what John's gospel is doing, that Jesus is God. And the whole point is the people must come to this understanding and to this faith and to this trust. You must believe and trust that he is God sent from heaven, sent from the Father. And so all of this discussion moves throughout the Gospel of John and goes into chapter 8. All right. So now let us now concentrate on chapter 8. In chapter 8, we're not going to start usually where, you know, linearly, as some may have it in their Bibles. Some may have it in their Bibles dealing with the issue of the woman who is caught in adultery. Now, I'm only going to address this very briefly, simply to say it is a beautiful story. Yes, it is. It is most likely, and I do believe it is, a true tradition. Now, notice what I said. It is a true tradition However, the, the issue, that whole section that deals with the adulterous woman is not found in scripture. And what, what we mean by this is in some of our better Greek manuscripts. Remember, our New Testament comes from Greek manuscripts. That, that's the original writings for the New Testament. This particular story of the woman that is caught in adultery is not found in the best Greek manuscripts. And you may even note in your own Bibles, if you have a modern Bible, you may even note that there will be a notation there that simply says that this is not found in the manuscripts, even if they include it. And one of the reasons why they include it is just such a beautiful story with beautiful concepts and lessons that are to be learned from this, even though it is not in the actual text. All right. So, and that's dealing with this whole issue, what we call textual criticism. We're not going to get into that. You can look at certain teachers like James White, Dr. James White, or Dr. Daniel Wallace. They are great teachers and you'll find a lot of information. You'll see a lot of stuff on YouTube with these particular teachers and they deal with textual criticism and have many debates and arguments concerning such things as the like. So if you want to learn more about textual criticism, you can watch a few of their videos. Okay. But back to what I'm talking about. So the whole issue is the woman that's caught in adultery is not in the best Greek manuscripts. And so therefore we will not deal with it. I'm not going to cover it at all because I'm dealing with the gospel of John as best we have it from the Greek manuscripts. Okay. And also too, you can see as we deal with the context, because remember the last time we were in John, 
uh, chapter 7, we were at the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. Same thing. Remember that. We are continuing that same idea in John chapter 8 in the Feast of Tabernacles. And the woman called an adultery actually interrupts the flow of the text. Okay. But anyway, I'm not going to get into that. All I'm simply letting you know is we won't deal with the woman caught in adultery because it is actually not in the Greek manuscript at this time. The story, that's why we, you hear me say the term sometimes tradition. The story may indeed be true, but it is not in the text. Okay, so therefore we skip over that from the end of chapter 7, 7, uh, verse 53, unto 8. And in verse 11, all of that, that section, not in the original Greek text. So now let's just simply continue in chapter eight, starting at verse 12. And we will find ourselves still at the occasion of the Feast of Booze, namely also the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I am from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. OK, let's stop there. So what's going on now? At the Feast of Booze, same idea, Feast of Tabernacles, okay? In chapter 7, what we saw was an occasion. Remember I told you about the Gihon Spring where they would go and get the waters and they would sing songs and Jesus made the statement, he who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, okay? We have a similar occasion here at this same festive time, the Feast of Booze, Feast of Tabernacles, same thing, okay? Same thing. What would happen is... In the court of the women, now, th that is in the temple, at the temple compound. And I don't have time to go through uh, what the temple compound was like, but basically you got the inner court, the holy place, the most holy place, Ark of the Covenant was kept, okay? And then you got the holy place where only the priests could go, holy place with the candelabra, things of that nature, table of showbread, uh, uh, altar of incense. Then you would have the place where the Jewish men could come and worship, Okay. And it's kind of like the outer court in a sense, but this is like more the inside and the Jewish men could worship. And then you would have this place called the court of women moving a little further out because you're moving further out, further out, further out. The court of the women, which is also the place where the temple treasury was, where the people put in their offerings, the temple treasury. So the temple treasury and the court of the women basically in the same place. It was at this particular place that these events took place in the court of the women. Now, in the court of the women, there were giant candlesticks, candelabras, giant candelabras that were uh, the priests used some of the clothing of their garments. The old garments of the priests were used for weeks and they would light this candle and it would light up the court of the women at night. And so this and at this particular time when they would do this, they would also sing praises unto God when the when the light, the giant candles were lit in the court of the women. So this is this particular occasion where Jesus is here and it is now fitting as the lights of the lamp, <laughs> lamp stands are being lit 
our Lord says, I am the light of the world. Okay. And I, and there are other things that we can get into and I'm not, I'm not, but I just throw it at you that we can get into because what? When you understand the tabernacle, the one that was erected by Moses, Exodus chapter 25 through 40, when there's a place in the holy place, there's the candelabra that is there. And the candelabra was placed in the holy place, not the most holy place, but the holy place. In the holy place, there was no light that entered the holy place from the outside world. The light was only given by the candelabra. And we can see again, notice how this touches with Jesus. I am the light of the world because once you, okay, enough. I said I wasn't going to get into it. That is a lesson of itself. But my point is reflections to these things can be seen. It can be seen even for those observant Jews on the Sabbath day how the woman is the one to light the candles. And I'm not going to get into that. There are all kinds of things that we can talk about. And I think I might be throwing you guys into confusion by touching these things without explanation. But just simply let me say, many parallels and examples can be made to these things, but going directly back to the text, as they are lighting the candles, Again, like we can see a movement of Jesus when the people were bringing water from the Gihon Spring in chapter 7. You can see a movement in Jesus as they're lighting these giant candles and people singing praises to God. And remember, this is during the Feast of the Boo. Everybody looking for what? Salvation and peace and residing with God in peace. And Jesus being moved and said, I am the light. And so the whole issue of what Jesus simply is saying is... Faith in him. So let me just cut it short like that. Believing in him. Remember the whole idea of everything that's happening in the gospel. Jesus trying to convince the people that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of God and son of man. But we're not going to get into all of those different concepts. We've dealt with them a number of times. If you've been faithfully following the teachings, especially in the gospel of John. So Jesus has constantly been trying to make himself known to these people. Again, we're at the Feast of the Tabernacles. He declares again, he is the light of the world and the one who follows him shall not walk in darkness. The one who believes in Jesus shall not walk in darkness. The one who puts his trust in Jesus shall not walk in darkness. The one who believes that Jesus is the son of man and the son of God will not walk in darkness. And the whole issue, and we can even just go into depths upon depths upon depths, darkness absence of knowledge, darkness, in the presence of sin, surrounded by a cloud of sin. But Jesus says what? He is the light. The one who follows him, believes in him, comes to the true knowledge and understanding of God the Father and even God the Son, the one who follows after him, the one who obeys and is obese. It has both faith and obedience. That's what it means by walks, follows after me. You believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the son of, and remember, you have to always remember the titles. I guess I remind you guys almost on every single video. Son of God refers to his deity. Son of man refers to his humanity. He is God in human flesh. God sent to be a human being with a purpose to, to obtain salvation for our sins. But anyway, Believing in these things, you do not walk in darkness, but you have the light of life. 
that faith in Jesus Christ leads to eternal life, leads to presence of God, peace with God. Okay. And so when Jesus made this particular statement, claiming to be the light, all right. And I hope you guys understood all of this stuff that I was saying about the lighting of the candles and how this moved Jesus to say these things. But moving on in the text, the Pharisees condemned him because they said he was bearing witness of himself. Now, remember earlier that Jesus bore witness of himself. I believe it's in chapter seven. And, and, but Jesus whole point was uh, chapter seven or chapter six, one of them, but I've forgotten. But Jesus whole point was he was bearing witness of himself from a legal perspective, from a legal perspective, that is from a court court or forensic, <laughs> from a court or forensic perspective, as if one to speak legally in a court settings. So that was the first time that Jesus said that. But now Jesus bearing witness to himself, the Pharisees have a problem. They're saying, you're not supposed to do that. But what you have to understand is, Jesus, see, because the reason why I'm kind of hesitating because I'm not filling in all of the blanks. Jesus said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Okay, that's what he said the first time. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Speaking from a forensic, as if from a court, legally, that which is legally binding. All right. Jesus is not speaking in that terminology anymore. He is now simply making proclamations concerning himself because no one knows themselves better than the person who is speaking other than God, of course, <laughs> other than God. But no one knows himself. So Jesus is not speaking as if from a court perspective, he is speaking from the witness of himself. I know who I am. And that's why he's going to continue to say, even in this text, you don't know me. You don't know where I'm from, but I do know where I'm from. I can speak. I can bear witness because I know who I am. So Jesus was not speaking forensically. He was speaking uh, as an individual who knows himself. All right, enough of that. But the Pharisees detect him because he did bear witness of himself. And so what did Jesus say? Jesus said, even if I did bear witness of myself, my witness is true. And that goes simply back to what I was just saying. I know who I am. So therefore, I can tell you who I am. And again, notice he says, I know where I come from and where I'm going. You do not. The whole issue, as we just talked about in our introduction, in the issue of chapter seven, remember the whole point was the origin of Jesus. Who are you? We know, says the people, your father, your mother. We know who you are from. Remember again, from Galilee. No great prophet comes out of Galilee. Search the scriptures and see if that's not true. His origin. And again, what I talked to you guys about in the introduction, the origin of Jesus speaks of his what? Pre-existence. Pre-existence. How? How long? In the beginning, he existed in eternity past without a date of creation. He existed alongside of the father. The father has no time for existence. He has always existed. So therefore, speaking of Jesus's origin always relates back to his divinity, that he is God. I hope you understood the argument back. OK, once again, so you'll get it good. Notice how, again, it comes right back to his origin origin. Where are you supposed to be from? Jesus said, I can identify myself. 
because I know where I come from. I know where I'm going. It comes from heaven. To come from heaven speaks of pre-existence. When you deal with that, that means before he became flesh, before he was a human being, he existed. In order to deal with the idea of pre-existence, John nicks it at the very beginning. When is the time of Jesus's existence? In the beginning, that is in eternity past. Simply to say, he always did exist. How long? In the beginning was the word. How long? The word was with God. So his eternal existence was with God. So he had to always exist. The only being who can always exist, and the word was God, is God himself. So when Jesus begins to speak of his origin in these ways, it is always reflecting back to his divinity that he is God. And remember, that's the whole theme of John itself. Jesus, the Christ, is God. Okay, so that's the idea. But nevertheless, go back to the text. So Jesus begins to emphasize. He said, I know where I come from. Back to that issue of origin and divinity at the same time. And also then he says, and I know where I'm going. And Jesus now begins to speak of his soon departure. And we know that his departure will be uh, uh, by way of crucifixion. He will give himself to be crucified. That's when I say give himself, that is voluntarily allow them to catch, to take him, crucify him, resurrected from the dead. And then after three days, and then an additional 40 days after the resurrection from the dead, three days after death, 40 days after he re resurrects from the dead, he ascends into heaven to return back to where he came from. I know where I come from and I know where I am going. I'm going back to heaven. And that's the idea. And where I am, you cannot go. And the idea is, again, because they are not believing in Jesus, because they have not accepted Jesus, because where is he going? He's going back to heaven with the Father to be seated at his right hand. And because they have not believed in Jesus, believed that he is who he says that he is, again, hashing some of this again, son of God, that he is God coming to this world, and son of man, that he is the Messiah who will give his life as a ransom for sin. They have rejected those two aspects of who he is. Therefore, where he is going, they cannot follow. You cannot Enter into heaven unless you believe that Jesus is the son of God and the son of man. And he's going to talk about this even more so. OK, but anyway, so we back to the issue of origin once again. And the issue of origin speaks to his what? Yes, his divinity. Let's continue. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Okay, so here we have Jesus' response to when they said, your testimony is not true because you're testifying of yourself. 
And so Jesus simply responds and simply says, the problem is the manner in which you are judging. You're judging according to the eyes. You're judging according to appearances, to the things that you see. You are judging according to your limited perception because you have not believed what I have said about myself, about where I'm from. You have not understood these things. You are judging according to the flesh. And he uses that term sarcos here. And sarcos is normally, it's a Greek word for flesh. It is normally used for sin. Paul used that word especially for sin. And so the idea is in their sinfulness, as their eyes are closed, as their perception is indeed limited, as they themselves clearly are demonstrating, they are not given of the Father because of their own sinful rejection of Jesus, their judgment of him and the things that he says leads them to an improper conclusion. So, you messed up. You're messed up. And so therefore, the way that you're judging me and what I'm saying, it's messed up. If you were in good shape, and I'm, para I'm paraphrasing a lot of this. If you were in good shape, spiritually, your eyes were open. Indeed, you had been given by my father. Had you had been believing what I was saying, then your judgment would be true. But because you are judging in the flesh, you are misjudging me. But nevertheless, Jesus continues to simply says, even if he, he says, first of all, he says he does not judge anyone. Now, the issue simply is this. He did not come into the world the first time to, uh, to be a judge. He came into the world the first time to die and give his life as a ransom for many. In his second advent, in his return, he returns as the king and judge of the world. So, at this time in Jesus' life, he is not a judge. He has come now to, be, to provide what? To, to be a sin bearer for the sins of mankind, okay? So he simply says what? I do not judge. However, even if he did judge, he says, his judgment would be true. Why? Because he speaks those things that only come from the Father, and the Father himself is true. So whatever judgment Jesus would render, even if he did judge, his judgment is true because of his unity with the father. Okay. And so he says, even when it says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. The issue, the partial confusion can be your law. What is Jesus making reference to? Is he speaking to the law of Moses? I believe it's Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19. I believe those are two passages it talks about two or three witnesses in dealing with issues in a court scenario. OK, life and death sentences and other things. But anyway, is he speaking of the law of Moses or is he speaking of the law of the Sanhedrin? And here I believe Jesus is speaking of the law of the Sanhedrin. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the Greek and all of the, the, the minutia that can lead to this final interpretation. You can kind of write a paper on that. But what it seems Jesus is emphasizing here is not so much as the law of Moses that says the law of uh, uh, the witness of two men is acceptable, 
But even as Jesus speaks to them, for it is the very rulers, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, okay? As he speaks to these very people, he says, even in your law, the testimony of two men is true. And so that's what Jesus, he's using, not so much as the law of Moses, but as he already said, they don't keep the law. But even in their supposed laws and how they deal with men and dealing with controversies among men, two witnesses are required, at least two or more witnesses. And so that's what Jesus referred to when he said, even in your law is written the testimonies of men. So, but we can't be dogmatic. He could be referring to the law of Moses or he could be referring to their Sanhedrin law. But in either case, he simply says that the law allows for the witness of two or three, two or more men. And what does he say? I am one who testify and the father is another. Now, one of the problems that, that was happening here, and we'll see it even later in the text is they just don't understand. Remember the whole issue of Jesus's origin in their naturalistic carnal mind. They're thinking of human origins, a mother and the father. So as, but Jesus keeps speaking, as we know of his father in heaven, he's not talking about Mary or Joseph because we know Joseph was not his father and he's not talking about Mary. He's not talking about a human origin. He's talking about his true origin from the father, God who is in heaven. They just didn't, didn't get it. So as he kept talking and dealing with issues concerning the father, they kept in their mind trying to relate it to a human father. But anyway, I testify of me, I'm one, so that's a valid witness, and the Father also testifies about me. That's another valid witness, so therefore my testimony should be received. So remember, all Jesus is doing here is answering their argument. What argument? You testify about yourself, therefore your testimony cannot be received. Jesus says, even in your law, you got two witnesses that make a testimony receivable, me and the father. We both testify. So that satisfies that, that answers that particular question. Okay. But again, we don't lose fact that Jesus, the whole issue and Jesus speaking to his origin and the problem that the people are having dealing with Jesus's origin. And what does the origin of Jesus speak of? His pre-existence, speaking of John 1 and 1, what? His divine nature, that he is God, that must be maintained in your mind as we contextually, as we move through these passages in context to understand, especially where I'm going to stop at today. Okay, but let's just keep going. All right. So again, Jesus satisfies the issue of his testimony, whether it should be received. His, his word and the father's word. 18, I'm he who, I'm sorry, 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Again, notice what the people said in verse number 19. Where is your father? Remember what I just said? They were thinking so carnally and naturalistic. They're thinking about a human father. And Jesus' consistent reference is 
his heavenly father. So they're saying this man keep talking about where he's from and who he is and his father. Okay, Jesus, just who is your father? Who, who is this man that can bear witness to all this stuff that you're claiming? And once again, Jesus is not speaking of a man, a human being. He is always speaking of the heavenly father. So he just simply says, you don't know, you know, you neither know me nor my father. For if you had known me, you would also know the father. In other words, he's speaking to their unsaved condition. You know, neither me. You don't know me for who I say that I am. I've been telling you again and again and again. I am what? The son of God. I am what? The Christ, the Messiah. I have come to offer salvation. I am also God amongst men. You don't believe this. You don't know me. And guess what? It is also evident you don't know my father. Remember, there's always a unity with son and the father. He who has the son has the father. But if you do not have the son, you do not have the father. If you do not know the son, you do not know the father. Their state is unsaved. For had they known, had they known the father, they would have known and received the son. That is Jesus. So their rejection of Jesus their rejection of Jesus is the evidence they have never known the father. And that's what Jesus is simply saying here. If you knew me, you would know my father also. But by you not knowing me simply lets us all know you don't know the father. And the father, of course, does not know you. That is speaking to their what? Unsaved condition. And then it says in verse number 20 that Jesus was speaking these things in the treasury that in the treasury was in the court of the women where they lit those candles, which caused this whole scenario to start in the first place, lighting those giant candles in the court of the women and Jesus seeing, experiencing these things, people singing and Jesus wants, he wants to, to give the word of salvation. I am the light of the world. Okay. All of this stuff happening at that particular place in the treasury. And then it says no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, we have addressed this particular issue a number of times. I believe it's in chapter seven as well. A number of times, but we don't want to be too redundant. But the whole idea is Jesus was operating on the schedule of the father. The time in the idea of seizing Jesus was to seize him. Remember the, the soldiers in chapter seven. The high priest has sent the priests has sent their soldiers to arrest Jesus. The whole issue and many wanted to kill Jesus to arrest Jesus and have him killed. OK, but no one could seize Jesus. That is with the idea in order that he might be put to death without the divine allowance of God. Jesus was operating in the time of God. He must die in a nutshell at the time that God has determined him to die in the place in which God had determined him to die and in the manner in which God had determined him to die and by the hands of those ones whom God had predetermined for him to die. So all of this had to take place according to the will of God. But no, what? Even though it might have been in the minds and hearts of some of those people to seize him, they could not because they were not allowed 
by God. It was not time yet. And so the scripture just simply says it here in John for his time had not come. His time would come. His time would come for him to be apprehended in the garden of Gethsemane, for him to be taken into before a mock trial before the Jews and taken before Pontius Pilate and for him to be condemned unto death and crucified by Rome. This time would come, but it's not now. It's not the schedule of God. So therefore they themselves are apprehended of God not to lay hands on him. All right. 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and I and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Okay, now let's deal with that. We're going to deal with this verse by verse because sometimes I get excited and I miss some stuff. But remember what I've been, we've been walking through the whole issue, even from chapter seven Everybody keeps dealing with this whole issue of origin, origin. Where is he from? Who is your father? Blah, 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 tweet, tweet, tweet about Jesus comes from this, this, blah, blah, blah. From Galilee, origin. Remember what I've been taking you through. Stand with the context. Origin of John, speaking of what? One who preexisted. I come from above. I, before I ever took human form, I existed. John's whole point in chapter one, how long did he exist? In the beginning, he forever existed alongside of God. How could he exist alongside of God? And the word was God. He is God. Okay. Divine origin. Origin speaks of he is God. So you have to keep that in focus as you move through this context. So now let's go to the verse 21. Again, Jesus speaks of what? He said, I will go away and you will seek me. He gives reference to his ascension into heaven. We've already spoken about that. that he's going to, he, Jesus alluding. He's not saying directly he's going to die on the cross, raised from the dead. But we all know as the gospel progresses, the story of the gospel progresses, that's exactly what happened. Dies on the cross, resurrects three days later, ascends into heaven, book of Acts, okay? But he's uh, alluding to this particular event. And what does he say? I'm going away, returning back to the Father in heaven, to where I came from, pre-existence, divinity. And what? You're going to seek me. That is, you're going to seek to where I am. And that speaks of when Jesus departed. What did he do? They hid the body. His disciples came and stole away the body or whatever. And also, no doubt, no, people were looking for Jesus even at that time. But you will seek me. And what does he say? And you will die in your sin where I'm going. You cannot come. Okay, let's deal with the latter part where I am going. That is to heaven. You cannot come. You cannot come to heaven. They cannot go to heaven because they reject him as the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God. They reject Jesus for what he has been saying. They have rejected both his divinity, 
that he is God. Remember, they wanted to kill him a number of times. You're a man. You make yourself out to be God because you're making yourself equal with God. Who are you? But anyway, they rejected his claim to divinity. They rejected his claim that he is the Messiah. And so therefore, if you do not believe in Jesus in these manners, those two claims, you cannot go to heaven because this is the only way to salvation through the son, through Jesus, through what he has said about himself. And so that's, that's why Jesus said, I'm going to heaven, but you can't follow me. Why? Because the father has only laid one pathway to himself, the son. You must believe I am. In other words, remember Jesus will say even later on in the gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the father except by me. There's only one way unto salvation. And since they have rejected Jesus in this manner where he is going, they cannot come. So that's why he says, and you will die in your sin. Now, I just want to make notice one that sin here is in the singular. What we are going to notice is later on, Jesus would use sin in the plural. Is there a distinction with sin in the singular, sin in the plural? I believe so. And the idea is sin here is dealing with their rejection of him. If you do not believe in Christ Jesus, if you do not believe in him and what he says, put faith in Jesus, his death on the cross, that he is God, only God can save. So therefore, God had to take human form, but only the blood of the Messiah could save. That's the book of Hebrews. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So therefore, God had to become a man in order to obtain salvation. If you do not believe in this, you will die in your sin. You must believe in the person of Jesus. Okay. So the sin here, the singular is their rejection of him. You will die because ultimately you have rejected me. And remember, there's only two places you can go. There's no such thing as a purgatory. There is heaven in the abode of God and there is hell and of course, eternally, lake of fire, being cast away from the presence of God. They will be cast away into hell, ultimately to be cast into the lake of fire because of their rejection of Jesus. What am I dealing with? You will die in your sin, singular, the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Okay, 22. So the Jews, again, were confused by this issue of Jesus saying he was going away. Early in chapter seven, when Jesus said about he would go away, they were saying, is he going to go to the Jews in the diaspora? Now go back and look at that because I don't want to rehash all of that. But he's going to go back to the Jews who were scattered in amongst the Gentiles in other parts of the world, Gentile world. And is he going to teach them. They were confused what Jesus meant when he said he was going away because what they didn't understand that Jesus kept saying, I'm going back to where I came from heaven with the father. So when he's simply saying he's going away, they're not understanding that they're still thinking in a naturalistic way. And they're saying, well, where is he saying he's going to go? So in order for Jesus to go somewhere, where can I follow? They say, okay, he said, well, he, he uh, well, apparently he's not going to the Gentile uh, um, uh, Jews amongst them. So is he now going to kill himself? So this is the second option that they come up with. 
The only place that we won't follow and we can follow after him is in death. So is he simply saying he's going to commit suicide? The whole idea is the people are still in a naturalistic mindset, frame of mind, because they're not understanding what Jesus is speaking about when he talks about his origin. He is not simply human born. He pre-existed. He pre-existed in heaven alongside of the Father for all eternity because he is God. And they're not understanding that particular point. But anyway, you have to remember that. But, but let's keep going. And so he simply says this in verse number 23. What? You're from below. I'm from above. Again, that's the distinction that he's being made. You are up and below. He's not talking about uh, 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 hell. He's talking about this world. Because notice, you are of this world. I am not of this world. Again, notice the whole issue of origin saturates this word. What does he say? You are from below and you are of this world. It shows, and oftentimes we'll see when it speaks of the world, the natural, unbelieving, unsaved state. Natural, unbelieving, unsaved state. A God-hating state. A Jesus-rejecting state. The world, the world. And I'm quite sure you guys have heard the terminology and probably have used the terminology. You're worldly and you of the world, things of that nature. But Jesus simply says, you are of the world. You are from below. Speaking again of their sinful state and also showing a contrasting, a dichotomy, a different state. What's different between you and me? You from this world. This sinful, God-hating, and God-rejecting world. And you are a part of this world. And you originate from this world. But me, I am different. I am not of this world. I am from heaven. I am from the Father. And that's the idea that Jesus is trying to make in this contrast. I am not of this world. Again, alluding back to what? Yes, his origin. I didn't come simply by being born of Mary. I existed outside of Mary, before Mary, the divine origin. I existed alongside of the Father. John 1 and 1 again. John 1 and 1 again. In the beginning, in eternity past, all the past, as far back as you can go, the dateless past was the word, existed the word. And he uses the Greek verb in the imperfect tense. And I'm not going to dissect it again. Go back and look at what I talked about in John 1 and 1. Imperfect tense, always existed the word. And how did the word exist? With God, that relationship with God, the closeness with God, the word was with God. And if it existed with God, you got to ask about the timetable of God. The father has always existed. How can the word exist alongside of God with God? Because the word was God. The nature of the word was God. And what happened in verse number 14? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. That is Jesus. God became flesh. God became a man. That's what we call the incarnation of God. But anyway, again, Jesus, I'm saying all of 
I am not of this world. All of it goes back to that concept. To speak of Jesus's origin is to speak of his divine nature, that he is God. Now let's continue. Notice how we have stayed with the context because that's absolutely important as we build. I'm going to climax it here because I'm going to cut off shortly. But as we build to this climax of a point, verse 24, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Okay. Again, notice Jesus, that we got that. Therefore, Predicated upon what? I've been telling you something. I've been telling you who I am. I've been telling you where I am from. I've been speaking to you of my true father, God from heaven. I am from heaven. I pre-existed. I existed alongside of the father. I am equal with the father. Why? The whole in a nutshell for I am God and the word was God. And so what does he say? I've been saying these things to you that he said, and I've also told you what you're going to die in your sins. Verse number 24. Now sins is used in the plural. What is he saying? So you see, not just die in your, the, the, the culmination in all of your sins your sins of life will remain upon you. All the lies that you have said, this is not just simply the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. That's sin singular. But all the lies, all the breaking of God's commandments, all of your sinful thoughts, your sinful, every single thing that you have ever done remains to your account. You will die in your sins. You will suffer the consequences of every single sin you have committed against God. Why? You have rejected the one, one and only sin bearer, God who became flesh. You will die in all of the and experience the result of all of your sins because you have rejected the sin bearer. You got it? So notice there is a direct connection to sin as well as sins. You die in your sin. Why? That singular rejection of Jesus. So therefore, remember, Jesus came to do what? Pay the price for all sins, period. That's what he came for. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He came to die for the sins of the world. But you have to put your faith in him and him alone. You got it? So therefore, to reject him is a sin. The sin that leads unto death. To reject him. All right? And in rejecting him, what is the result? All of your sins remained. Why? Because unless you put your faith in Jesus and simply say, I believe he died for my sins, then all your sins are yours. And the consequences of hell and the lake of fire. 
is yours as well. Okay, but let, let's go on to the verse. So that's why you should see why he says sins here, plural, in dealing with all the things that the, you have committed, all the sins we have committed are ours now because of rejection of Jesus Christ and therefore the consequences are ours, okay? Why dying in sins? Notice what he says. For unless you believe that I am, says I am he, but that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says, for unless you believe that I am. Now, if you've been following me in John, we've talked about this I am statement of Jesus a hundred times now. Here again, Jesus is reflecting back to what? Exodus 3 and 14. Remember, God said, said unto Moses, I am who I am. He is also reflecting back to the Isaiah chapter 40, uh, uh, Isaiah 41. Matter of fact, you can go to Isaiah's 40 through 45, when God is giving self-declarations of himself, but especially you see it in Isaiah chapters 41 and chapter 43, when God himself says, and is rendered this way in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Isaiah, I am. God refers to himself as I am. So the whole point is when Jesus, we see these seven usages of I am in the gospel of John, these are seven references that Jesus are giving concerning himself that he is God. He is the God of the Old Testament. He's not saying he is. He is not saying there is no God, the father, but he is simply saying he is declaring himself to be one with the father to be God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus constantly keeps saying, and John records it in this manner, I am. And in the actual text, and if you notice in your text, you probably see he is italicized in your text. For unless you believe that I am, I am. So what is Jesus saying? And what is John continuously? What did I just say? What is John continuously building on in his gospel? Jesus is God. What does the prologue say? John 1 and 1 through verse 18. In the beginning was the word, where was God? And then finally, verse 14, no man has ever known the Father, but the only, the uniquely begotten God, he has exegeted. He has explained him. He has made him known. The whole idea, God has to truly make the Father known. Only God can make God known. And he made God known when the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took flesh. He made God known. He was able to make God known. He was qualified to make God known. But anyway, so what is Jesus saying here? Again, now let's bring all the argument together. He's been talking about the origin. What have I told you about origin? Come from the Father. I didn't just simply come from Mary, or as you falsely believe, you Jews, Joseph and Mary. No, I existed before then. I came from the Father. Hold John's gospel. I pre-existed. I was alongside of God. I was with God in the very bosom of God. I am God. That's the whole idea of John. And that's the whole idea that's been carrying on with this origin. Who are you? Who are you? Oh, who is your father? And who is blah, 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 blah. Origin speaks to his divinity. And why am I hammering this for the third time in this short lesson? Notice what Jesus says. For unless 
You believe that I am. Again, the I am what? Statement relating back to Exodus 3 and 14. God self-identifies himself to Moses. The people will ask, who is this God? Who is his name? I am. You tell them that. Again, I am, says God through Isaiah in 40, 41, 43. I am God. I am Yahweh. There is none like me. I create the earth. I cause things to be. I speak of the future. I am. Search. No other God like me. No other God besides me. There will be no other gods other than me. I am. <laughs> I didn't intend to preach, but it's so important to understand what Jesus is saying. For unless you believe everything that I've been saying about myself, namely what of my divine nature of my divine origin of who and what I am son of God. I am God. Unless you believe I am God of the old Testament, God spoken of God that I've been telling you about. Notice, notice what it says. Notice the context Believing that he is, I am, referencing back to what? The divine name. What is the result? You will die in your sins. Speaking to those Jews, principles set forth for all time. Now, why was I pushing that so hard? It is not enough to believe that Jesus was simply the Messiah. That is, he was just a man. He was a good man. He was a great man. And he was like a prophet. He was, some people believe, he was a firstborn of God's creation. That's wrong. That's nowhere found in scripture. That's not what protocost means, firstborn. That's not, but I'm not getting into that discussion. That's wrong. And notice the whole concept of John's gospel. I've been hitting that all the time. That's why we're studying John now. Jesus is God. He's not just an angel. He's not just a man. You can't accept him as a prophet. If you do not believe that Jesus is the I am who spoke to Moses, he is the I am of Isaiah chapters 40 through 45, that he is the I am of Isaiah chapter six, the God who was on the throne when Isaiah saw him. And John is going to also say in John chapter 12, but we're not going to go there yet. Unless you believe that Jesus is John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, you will die in your sins. And that's what he is simply saying to them. Notice how important this aspect of the Christian faith is. You must believe. By the grace of God, through your struggles of the divine nature of Jesus, he is not just a man. I, God can't die. God can't die. God can give his life. God can take human form. God can enter in his own creation 
as a man. Philippians chapter two, God can humble himself as a man, even to the point of death on a cross. God can lay aside his divine prerogatives to lay aside his divine powers, knowledge and, and, and omnipotence and um, he can willingly do these things in order to accomplish salvation. God can. And unless you believe that Jesus indeed is God almighty revelations, you will die in your sins. In other words, there is no salvation apart from believing that Jesus is God. In order to be saved, no person can be saved who reject Jesus is God. What did he say again? It's right there in your text. For unless you believe the whole issue of origin, 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 who are you waiting? Unless you believe what Jesus, I am the divine name. What happens if I don't believe you are indeed Yahweh? Because that's the divine name. All of it's the same. <laughs> you will die in your sins. There is no salvation for you. So that is one of the most crucial points, necessities of our salvation that we must come to terms with. And if you haven't come to terms with that, you're not saved. And I do pray that God brings you to that understanding and belief. And the way that this can be rooted in you with great depths is through the study of the scripture. And as we like to say, line by line, precept by precept, everything in its context. Okay. All right. Enough of that because I went into preaching. I only wanted to teach. But anyway, what was the whole point of Jesus final point to them as he dealt with his origin? That is the origin of ways from the origin speaks of what again? The divine nature. Just go back to John 1 and 1. That's why I kept saying it again and again and again. When was Jesus origin? Is he a creature? That is a created being. No, he existed with God. A created being had to have a time that it came into being. That's why it uses the verb that does not deal with time. The beginning, in the beginning, he was that verb that it uses here in the imperfect tense. Jesus is not a created being. He always existed with God. How can you do that? You must have the nature and qualities of God and the word was God. This is so important to the very fabric of the Christian belief that no person may be saved without believing that, which gives us this. And I'm gonna stop right here. That's why you keep hearing me talk about the two titles of Jesus. Son of God refers to his what? His deity, that he is God. Son of man refers to his what? To his humanity, that he is man. He is God who took the form of flesh, humanity, in order to obtain our salvation, to die on that cross, okay? And then you're gonna see it again. As we continue on, this revelation will be made even clearer that what? Jesus is God. He is the great I am once he goes to the cross. Or should I even say, after his resurrection from the dead. But we'll talk about all of that 
as we continue on in John chapter 8. All right, guys, enough of that. God bless you. Thanks for joining me in today's teaching. If this lesson has been a blessing to you, in the description, you'll find a link where you can share and support this particular ministry. And, and saints, let me say this again. Thank you for those of you who have supported already. And for those who may not have been supported, been supporting the ministry, may I say, please consider giving a donation so that we can continue to bring you these lessons. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.